Hello, this is Mrs. Tritton. Welcome you back to The K by Theodore Taylor. Today I'm going to read chapter two. We finished dinner just as it was getting dark, and my father went outside to look at our house. He wanted to see if the blackout curtains were working. While my mother and I stood by each window, he called out if he saw the slightest crack of light. By the governor's orders, not a light could shine anywhere on the whole island, he said. Then he went back to the refinery. I just want to take a minute, the blackout curtains to explain those. Um, The big concern was that the enemy would be able to see light and then they would know where their target was. So it would help them to figure out where to like shoot the torpedo. I crawled onto the couch downstairs about nine o'clock, but I couldn't sleep. I kept thinking about the U-boats off our coast and those lake tankers with barefooted Chinese sailors on board. I guess I was waiting for the U-boats to send a shell toward Williamstead. In this case, a shell would be a torpedo. Then I began to wonder if the Germans would send soldiers too. About 9.30, I sneaked out of bed, went to the tool house, and took a hatchet out. I put it under the couch. It was the only thing I could think of to use for fighting the Germans. It must have been 11 o'clock when my father returned from the refinery to get all the flashlights we had in the house. They talked in low voices, but I could hear them. Mother said, it's too dangerous to stay here now. My father answered, Grace, you know I can't leave. She said, well, then Philip and I must go back. We'll go to Norfolk and wait until the danger is over. I sat up in bed, unable to believe what I was hearing. My father said, there's more danger in the trip back unless you go by air than there is in staying here. If they do shell us, they won't hear hit Charlou. Mother said sharply, you know I won't fly. I'd be frightened to death to fly. We'll talk about it later. My father sounded miserable. Soon afterward, he returned to the refinery again. I thought about leaving the island and it saddened me. I loved the old fort and the schooners and the Rydercade market with the noisy chickens and squealing pigs, the black people shouting. I love the Konico with its giant cactus, the divvy divvy trees, their odd branches all on the leeward side of the trunk, the beautiful sandy beach at West Point, and I'd miss Henrik van Boven. I also knew that Henrik and his mother would think us cowardly if we left just because a few German submarines were off Curacao. I was awake most of the night. The next morning, my father said that the Chinese crews on the lake tankers that shuttled crude oil across the sandbars at Maricabo had refused to sail without naval escorts. He said the refinery would have to close down within a day, and that meant precious gas and oil could not go back to England or to General Montgomery in the African desert. For seven days, not a ship moved by the Queen Emma Bridge, and there was gloom over Williamstead. The people had been very proud that the little islands of Aruba and Curacao were now among the most important islands in the world. 
that victory or defeat depended on them. They were angry with the Chinese crews. And on the third day, my father said that mutiny charges had been placed against them. But, he said, you must understand, they are very frightened. And some of the people who are angry with them would not sail the little ships either. He explained to me what it must feel like to ride the cargoes of crude oil, knowing that a torpedo or shell could turn the whole ship into flames any moment. Even though he wasn't a sailor, he volunteered to help man the lake tankers. Soon, of course, we might also run out of fresh water. It rains very little in the Dutch West Indies unless there's a hurricane, and water from the few wells has a heavy salt content. The big taker, tankers from the United States or England always carried fresh water to us in ballast, and then it was distilled again so that we could drink it. But now, all the big tankers were being held up in their ports until the submarines could be chased away. Toward the end of the week, we began to run out of fresh vegetables because the schooner men were also afraid. Now my mother talked constantly about the submarines, the lack of water, and the shortage of food. It almost seemed that she was using the war as an excuse to leave Curacao. The ships will be moving again soon, my father said confidently, and he was right. I think it was February 21st that some of the Chinese sailors agreed to sail to Lake Maracaibo, but on the same day, our Norwegian tanker headed for Williamstead was torpedoed off Curacao and fear again swept over the old city. Without our ships, we were helpless. Then a day or two later, my father took me into the shotgat where they were completing the loading of the SS Empire Turn, a big British tanker. She had machine guns fore and aft, one of the few armed ships in the harbor. Although the trade wind was blowing, the smell of gas and oil lay heavy over the shotgat. Other empty tankers were there high out of the water, awaiting orders to sail once they had cargoes. The men on them were leaning over the rail, watching all the activity on the Empire Turn. I looked on as the thick hoses that were attached to her quivered when the gasoline was pumped into her tanks. The fumes shimmered in the air, and one by one, they topped her tanks, loading them right to the brim and securing them for sea. No one said very much. With all that aviation gasoline around, it was dangerous. Then, in the afternoon, we went to Punda and stood near the pontoon bridge as she steamed slowly down St. Anna Bay. Many others had come to watch, too, even the governor, and we all cheered as she passed, setting out on her lonely voyage to England. There, she would help refuel the Royal Air Force. The sailors on the Empire Turn, which was painted a dull white, but had rust streaks all over her, waved back at us and held up their fingers in a V for victory sign. We watched until the pilot boat, having picked up the harbor pilot from the Empire Turn, began to race back to Williamstead. Just as we were ready to go, there was an explosion, and we looked toward the sea. The Empire Turn had vanished in a wall of red flames, and black smoke was beginning to boil into the sky. Someone screamed, there it is. We looked off to one side of the flames about a mile away 
and saw a black shape in the water very low. It was a German submarine surface now to watch the ship die. A tug and several small motorboats headed out toward the turn, but it was useless. A tug and several small motorboats headed out toward the turn, but it was useless. Some of the women cried at the sight of her, and I saw men, my father included, with tears in their eyes. It didn't seem possible that only a few hours before I had been standing on her deck. I was no longer excited about the war. I'd begun to understand that it meant death and destruction. That same night, my mother told my father, I'm taking Philip back to Norfolk. I knew she had made up her mind. He was tired and disheartened over what had happened to the Empire Turn. He did not say much, but I do remember him saying, Grace, I think you are making a mistake. You are both quite safe here in Charlou. I wondered why he didn't simply order her to stay, but he wasn't that kind of a man. The sunny days and dark still nights passed slowly during March. The ships had begun to sail again, defying the submarines. Some were lost. Henrique and I often went down to Punda to watch them go out, hoping that they would be safe. Neither my father nor my mother talked very much about us leaving. I thought that when two American destroyers arrived, along with the Dutch cruiser von Kingsenbergen, to protect the lake tankers, mother would change her mind. But it only made her more nervous. Then one day in early April, she said, Your father has finally secured passage for us, so today will be your last day in school here, Philip. We'll start packing tomorrow, and on Friday we will board, uh, we will leave aboard a ship for Miami. Then we'll take the train to Norfolk. Suddenly, I felt hollow inside. Then I became angry and accused her of being a coward. She told me to go off to school. I said I hated her. All that day in school, I tried to think of what I could do. I thought about going somewhere and hiding until the ship had sailed, but on an island the size of Curacao, there is no place to hide. Also, I knew it would cause my father trouble. That night when he got home, I told him I wanted to stay with him. He smiled and put his long, thin arm around my shoulder. He said, no, Philip, I think it's best that you go with your mother. At a time like this, I can't be home very much. His voice seemed sad, although he was trying to be cheerful. He told me how wonderful it would be to return to the United States, how, how many things I had missed while we were on the island. I couldn't think of one. Then I talked to my mother about staying on in Williamstead. She became very upset with both of us. She said that we didn't love her and began to cry. My father finally ended it by saying, Philip, the decision is made. You'll leave Friday with your mother. So I packed with her help and said goodbye to Henrik van Boven and the other boys. I told them we'd be gone just a short time, that we were going to go visit my grandparents my mother's parents in Norfolk. But I had the feeling that it might be a very long time before I saw Curacao and my father again. Early Friday morning, we boarded the SS Hato in St. Anna Channel. She was a small Dutch freighter with a high bow and stern and a bridge deck in the middle between two well decks. I'd seen her often in St. Anna Bay. Usually she ran between Williamstead, Aruba, and Panama. 
She had a long stack and always puffed thick black smoke. In our cabin, which was on the starboard side and opened out to the boat deck, my father said, Well, you can rest easy, Philip. The Germans would never waste a torpedo on this old tub. Yet, I saw him looking over the lifeboats. Then he inspected the fire hoses on the boat deck. I knew he was worried. There were eight other passengers aboard, and they were all saying goodbye to their relatives, just as we were saying goodbye to my father. In the tradition, people brought flowers and wine. It was almost like sailing in the days before the war, they told me. Father was smiling and very gay, but when the Hato's whistle blasted out three times, meaning it was time to go, he said goodbye to us between clenched teeth. I clung to him for a long time. Finally, he said, take good care of your mother. I said I would. We sailed down St. Anna Bay, and the Queen Emma Bridge parted for us. Through watery eyes, I saw the fort and the old buildings of Punda and Ochabanda. Native schooners were beating in from the sea. Then my mother pointed. I saw a tall man standing on the wall of Fort Amsterdam, waving at us. I knew it was my father. I'll never forget that tall, lonely figure standing on the seawall. The SS Hato took her first bite of open sea and began to pitch gently. We turned toward Panama, as we had to make a call there before proceeding to Miami. Down on the well decks, fore and aft, were four massive pumps that had to be delivered to Cologne, the port at the Atlantic entrance to the Panama Canal. I stayed out on the deck for a long time, sitting by the lifeboat, looking back at Curacao, feeling lonely and sad. Finally, my mother said, come inside now. All right, that's the end of chapter two. Go back to the hyperdoc and write your response. I'll see you for chapter three.